If you like audiobooks or audio shows, check out a free trial of Audible. Just click the link in the description. Welcome to Mindshock True Crime. You are listening to the Stephen Avery series. This is episode 12, so-called evidence 4. That's how much so-called evidence there is that might not stand up to, cr- to scrutiny because so far it hasn't. This is your host, Bruce McGuire. And Maxwell Powers. And we are going further down some of these examinations of the narrative put forth by the state against Stephen Allen Avery and all of these allegations. And as we go down examining all of them, it seems like none of them have any merit or substantiation. Isn't that shocking, Maxwell? Uh, that none have merit? Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Do you remember which case this is? <laughs> uh, Stephen Avery, he went to jail for something he didn't do and then is going to jail again for most likely not. He, I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> Maxwell Army. Once again, if you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. Subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. Like our Facebook page. You can also check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Patreon. And any thoughts, questions, comments, suggestions, or insults, feel free to drop them in the comment section. All right, so yeah, he was alleged to have killed Teresa Hallback, and they had the like the greatest sham of a trial in court history, probably, where Strang and Buting, Stephen Avery's attorneys, they, I mean, they did okay, but they didn't seem to really argue some of these points. I don't know why. And the Making a Murderer documentary, as we've discussed, I mean, it almost makes... Avery look a lot guiltier than he was. I mean, everything from not throwing the cat into the fire, because of course that was uh, Yanda who had a written statement test, like a written statement that he was the one that threw the cat in the fire. And then of course, Manitowoc in all of their integrity changed the report to say, or when they wrote up the report, they said they threw the cat in the fire. So they just included Stephen Avery with Yanda, not to be confused with Janda, which is Stephen Avery's sister. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. So we went through all of the evidence that's found in extreme conflict of interest because, of course, there's that $36 million lawsuit, which conveniently, you know, as soon as it's time for Tom Kucerich to be uh, deposed, all of a sudden Avery's getting arrested for Hallback. What a coincidence, right? Yeah. (laughs) All right. I'm going to read. Okay. Well, I'm going to read an article by John Farrakh for USA Today. And we're going to discuss if there was blood found at the quarry site. So once again, there were no dog hits in Stephen Avery's burn pit. And then we've, of course, we've gone over the legend of the bonfire in the previous episodes, how apparently there was no bonfire. And then all of a sudden there was a fire. Then it was a large fire. Then it was a really large fire. So the legend of the bonfire grew with time. Did Stephen Avery even have a bonfire? Did Stephen Avery have a bonfire of any kind? And if he did... Were there any remains found? Because it seems like there were no dog hits on the remains because, of course, they forgot to get the dogs in on the conspiracy because the dogs didn't know about the $36 million lawsuit. But so they there were there were dog hits at other sites. So you have Redont's Quarry and the Manitowoc County Quarry, uh, the Manitowoc County Gravel Pit. You have possible remains being found here. And for some reason, the judge just calls a recess as soon as uh, any of this is brought up. And then it's not brought up again. Isn't that strange, Maxwell? Yeah, it's kind of strange. <laughs> so let's, let's see if there was blood found. And if it was found, why wasn't it tested? And then why did it disappear from all reports after this report? So this was written by John Farrakh. Quarries may hold the key to Hallback's murder. And this was published October 11, Wait. 2016. Wait, what holds the key? Quarries. The hell is that? You don't know what a quarry is? Like a rock quarry? No. <laughs> Max Warren. Wait, what is it? It's it's a site where there's uh, either rock excavation being done or... I mean, it's usually called a, a rock quarry. But uh, the yeah, actual definition is a place, typically a large deep pit from which stone or other materials are or have been extracted. So pretty much like a gravel pit. That's it? Pretty much. Okay. So uh, okay. 
After sheriff's deputies recovered Teresa Hallback's Toyota RAV4 on the Avery Salvage Yard property in early November 2005, signs of a grisly crime began to emerge, but not where you'd expect. Less than a mile away in northern Manitowoc County, authorities located blood. They recovered charred human bones. They hauled away a considerable amount of suspicious burnt material. Surprisingly, none of this evidence came from their walled-off 40-acre crime scene at Avery Road, where Hallback's vehicle was found. And of course, you know, we have uh, Pam Sturm with her, uh, God told her to, uh, to go straight to where the RAV4 was in a, you know, in this 40-acre site with over 4,000 vehicles. They just go straight to the RAV4. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll that be discussing. Cool. We will be discussing. Was, it, was she was she was she led by a light or something like? She said it? she was led by God. Uh, okay, but there's no light shining on the car and shit like that. Well, supposedly it was in the afternoon, so. Uh, oh, oh, you mean uh, like a light from the clouds? <laughs> yeah, 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 that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, maybe there was. I don't know. I wasn't there. Were you there? Yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe like a like a bird, like a giant bird or something. Maybe it was one of the magic. I mean, they're pulling a lot of magic tricks. I mean, they put the Rav Four under the tarp, and then all of a sudden, it had Avery's. Well, even then, it still didn't have Avery's blood in it. And then, uh, you know, all that strangeness that we discussed in the previous uh, episodes with their circus acts and and all this uh, all this weirdness and and magic that Avery is alleged to be able to do. I mean, he must be the greatest criminal mastermind of all time if he pulled this off the way the state said. Once again, he could be guilty. But he would have had to pull this off a completely different way for, for it to work in any kind of logical sense. So, yeah, so we'll be getting into the RAV4 and the timeline, the sightings, and whether it was even on, the, on Avery's property before it was so-called discovered by Pam Sturm. Which, by the way, once again, if you, if you look at the transcript, it's very interesting how Ken Kratz interrupts and shuts down any kind of slip-ups or uh, Freudian slips that are happening, even with Pam, when they were discussing the RAV4. It's all, it's all very, very interesting. Those with some deductive reasoning ability and critical thinking skills might want to examine that before jumping on the guilty bandwagon. So, okay, so continuing on. Surprisingly, none of this evidence came from their walled-off 40-acre crime scene at Avery Road where Hallback's vehicle was found. The clues were emerging around several nearby quarry sites. And I mean, I have to digress again, because this is the state's case is just so illogical. So if Avery burned her at the quarry site, then he took then he took the remains and sprinkled them along Radon's property and then put them on his own property again. And then also his sister, his neighbor's sister's burn barrel. Like, how does this make any sense? Um, he just wants to confuse the dogs or something. <laughs> but, I mean, it's almost like it's backwards because the dogs never hit on his burn pit. So why would he want them to hit on Redon's if he's trying to make himself look guilty? Because <laughs> that was one of your theories, right? Or, or did we, if he has a split personality and one of his personalities wants him to get caught, so his first personality that doesn't know about his second personality, which is how he beat the brain fingerprint scan... Because that was the personality that didn't know about the personality that carried out the murder. So his so <laughs> one of the personalities is trying to make him look guilty, and the other one he's trying to get away. I don't know. Or he's got three personalities. One of them is kind of like the objective neutral one that wants him to be caught for the crime because his guilty personality did it. And then his innocent personality doesn't know about the guilty one, but the third personality knows about both and is trying to get him incriminated. <laughs> We should we should have we should have an episode called uh, Sybil Avery. <laughs> Why? Uh, Sybil is like the I think the multiple personality person, or is that schizophrenic? I forget. You know Sybil? I think no. S Y B I L. No clue. It's one of the popular. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I turned into Maxwell. Okay, we switch. <laughs> oh man! All right, so. The clues were emerging around several nearby quarry sites. The Wisconsin State Crime Lab found flesh and blood at the Mickles Materials Quarry near State 147 and the east side of Avery Road, about a quarter mile from the Avery Salvage Secured Crime Scene. 
We were told of three areas where cadaver dogs had been interested. State forensic scientist John Ertle testified at Stephen Avery's trial in 2007. There was a gravel yard, gravel quarry, and there was a maybe 30-foot-tall mound of gravel and sand, and about six to eight feet up the pile, the dog got excited about something. Well, that's the other thing. Why would he go and sprinkle bones on the top of a pile? I don't know. <laughs> it's we on top. We on top of a what pile? A pile of gravel and sand. Uh, it was a thirty foot tall mound, and about six to eight feet up the pile, the dogs get excited. Like huh. you would just randomly pick. It's just so weird. I don't know. I don't know. None of this makes any sense. Avery was eventually found guilty of murdering Hallback twenty five, and is serving a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. His nephew, Brendan Dassey, also is imprisoned for Hallback's murder, but his conviction has been overturned by a federal magistrate. Wisconsin Attorney General Brad Schimmel has appealed that decision. Back in 2005, Ertl's experienced team of forensic scientists found, quote, reddish staining on some pieces of gravel, end quote. Preliminary tests gave off a positive reaction for blood, according to Ertl. Furthermore, we located a pink substance, perhaps three quarters of an inch in largest dimension, looked like flesh, Ertl testified. We found another piece of material about the same size. It was reddish and white in color. Both of those items tested presumptive positive for the presence of blood. We collected those. We, we didn't find anything more. The blood and flesh, along with a number of charred bones that would also be recovered at Joshua Redon's quarry directly behind the Avery salvage yard, were downplayed by Special Prosecutor Ken Kratz at Avery's murder trial. By then, Kratz had already established his narrative for the high-profile murder case. Avery and Dassey raped, murdered, and incinerated the photographer's body at the burn pile pit near Avery's garage, which for some reason... Dogs never hit on. And they did all this while there was a house full of neighbors. And then they spent all these countless hours burning. And then nobody saw any fire until weeks later after the coerced uh, confession of Dassey where law enforcement told him what to say. And he regurgitated it finally just to get him to leave him alone. That That's the narrative we're working with. <laughs> Kratz, <thank you. laughs> I, I love I love that whole summary. <laughs> well that that's good without even going into the magic of how they killed her in the bedroom slit her throat no dna whatsoever and that's where they found the the spare key nobody even found her key so the spare key that would be in her apartment that other people had access to like uh Hilligus, her ex-boyfriend or blowdorn her uh the her roommate where's the real key they're like oh they found her spare key in avery's bedroom that proves that Avery killed her. Who the heck carries around their spare key with them? Like, where's her real key? How I, is I that? That's, ever... that's probably someone else's key. Yeah, that might that's... not even be the key to the... Re yeah, we, we have no clue. And, of course, it was missed. And then, of course, uh, what, what was it? Uh, Coburn was like, hey, how did I miss that? <laughs> After they searched it like seven times. Oh, and then again, yeah. so they killed her and they slit her throat in the bedroom. Then they went to the garage and then they killed her again. I think he said he sh they shot her 10 times or something. No evidence whatsoever. That bullet fragment recovered months later with uh, which, again, her skull must have been made out of wood or something because that that's like a weird magic bullet. And then, of course, Avery and, uh, and Dassey, like they must be the most skilled criminals ever because they did the greatest cleanup bleach job in the history of crime in the garage. And then they put back all the years of... Of dust grime and deer spec dna like if it's that easy for these guys with these low iqs to bleach a garage how come all these other criminals experienced serial killers are getting caught like is it if it's that easy to just bleach a garage why are so many like these guys are the only guys that have ever been able to clean up a crime scene with perfection like that's the state's case it doesn't make any sense and then of course they killed her twice they slit her throat in the bedroom then they carried her bloody bleeding body without leaving a single drop of blood <laughs> into the garage <laughs> and then they carried it outside without leaving a single drop of blood anywhere <laughs> oh man Wow. Yes, that's the summary, Max. And then and then after that that greatest cleanup job in the history of crime and the greatest body disposal in the history of crime, then he just parks the RAV4 and covers it with a couple branches. <laughs> hey, that's that's our most popular uh 
episode so far. I think it's episode six where we all, where we like summarize all that. Where we yeah, well, I just summarized it even better right now. And, yeah. then after, and then after he does all that for no reason, he goes to the he goes to Redont's quarry and the Manitowoc County gravel pit and sprinkles some more remains, and then he sprinkles some in his sister's barrel as well. <laughs> 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 that's the state's case that's the case like how does it make any sense <laughs> i wonder if i mean they should state it like that they should say did, wait did they actually say it like that no 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 that's that's my well, i'm just they it's almost it's kind of weird because they never even necessarily stated it and then uh, ken kratz said that the uh the the sweat transfer or dna transfer dna under the hood latch is like a large percentage of their case and they mentioned it like twice. And then the CSI tech admitted he didn't change his gloves between going through Stephen Avery's Grand Am and then opening the hood of the RAV4. So does it really take a rocket scientist to say, it was like, oh, his DNA is on the vehicle. Like the D, his sweat or transfer DNA, if you touch something with gloves and then you touch something else, the first thing you touch, there's going to be some of that residue on the second thing you touched. So that's that's Ken Kratz's entire case. And then, of course, you have that blood smear that looks exactly like a Q-tip. And it's unknown when that was even in the vehicle because the first the first officers at the scene said there was no blood in the car. So whether they didn't see it and it was there, we don't know. We're just going to take on blind faith the words of proven corrupt liars who framed the same guy before when there wasn't $36 million on the line. That's kind of weird to me. Like all the guilters are just, they accept to take all of this on blind faith without using any critical thinking or deductive reasoning. It's weird. It's weird. If Avery did it, he did it like this. No, it doesn't make any sense. And if they planted the blood at the crime lab, which is actually where most uh, corrupt frame-ups occur, then how would anybody know? And of course, the guilters all say that's completely impossible, no reason to even look at that or consider it in any way, because these proven corrupt liars, they would never frame him again. <laughs> and of course, it could only be one person who did it. Like, you know, there is no vast, you know, they the guilters fallaciously claim, and the conspiracy fact deniers, or conspiracy deniers, reality deniers, they say that there would have to be too many people involved. Says who? That's so fallacious. One or two people planted it, and the other people didn't know about it, and they just collected the DNA and tested it. There is no there is no vast conspiracy. It's a couple people. So anyway, that's my summary, Maxwell. Do you find any, do you find any uh, holes in that logic that I just stated, or no? Um, everything sounded pretty good. And I'm not even saying that's what happened. I'm saying, you know, let's go by the actual law beyond a reasonable doubt. Like you can't prove, like none of the evidence against Avery holds any kind of, I mean, it doesn't hold water in any way. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't kill her. Maybe he did, but like, we're not going to take on blind faith that he did. That's weird. I mean, it's just so weird. So Kratz speculated Avery and Dassey took turns thrusting a butcher knife into Hallback's naked body as she was chained to Avery's bedposts, screaming and begging for her life. And once again, his uh, those chains or whatever, none of that had any DNA on it at all from anybody. So they were probably never even used. I don't know. Ertl, a blood spatter expert, testified at Avery's trial that there was no evidence of any cast-off blood splatter inside Avery's bedroom or in the garage to corroborate Kratz's story. So the blood spatter expert working for the state is on the stand saying there is no evidence for Kratz's narrative. What does that tell you? So he's probably not in on the conspiracy. There is probably no vast conspiracy. It's a mix of a couple people doing the frame-up and a bunch of incompetent people. Sherry Colhane also testified that the DNA under the hood latch is consistent with transfer DNA, and the CSI tech admitted that he didn't change gloves. So where is all this evidence against Avery? So far, we haven't found any at all that stands up to scrutiny that doesn't require blind faith to believe. Fast forward nine years, Avery's post-conviction lawyer, Kathleen Zellner of suburban Chicago, is seeking a judge's permission to allow advanced DNA and scientific testing on several clues that were confiscated by Wisconsin law enforcement from the nearby quarries, including what's known as the Redont Deer Camp property off the seldom-traveled stretch of Cuss Road. And in our previous podcast on so-called evidence, we discussed Cuss Road extensively. 
And one more point. I, I forgot one more summary of the case. They won't allow Zellner to test the RAV4 or do any more DNA tests. Why not? If there was no cover-up and all the evidence against Avery's legit, I mean, there were other fingerprints found in the RAV4 which were never tested. Who do they belong to? Why won't they allow any testing? Have you ever seen an innocent party not want things tested? Because if the state's case is legitimate and there is no corruption or frame-up, why would they have a problem with any testing being done to corroborate the evidence? Exactly. I got nothing there, Maxwell. There's, I mean, what kind of possible explanation can there be on that? The truth is not afraid of investigation, but lies might be because <laughs> they don't want to be uncovered. It remains to be seen whether Zellner's late August court filing in Manitowoc County will reveal the identity of Hallback's killer. If Zellner's on the right track, many of the overlooked clues from the quarries may play an enormous role in determining Avery's fate. USA Today Network Wisconsin reviewed the 1,100-page-plus Hallback murder investigation report compiled by the Calumet County Sheriff's Department, plus other reports generated by the State Crime Laboratory to identify a number of instances where potentially significant clues turned up at the off-site quarries. Here are some of the notable examples. When, Saturday, November 5th, 2005, people involved, Calumet County Investigator John Dettering, DCI Agent Al Huntrader, Manitowoc County Detective Dennis Jacobs, Julie Kramer, Great Lakes Search and Rescue K-19, and Brutus, a cadaver-sent dog. And Brutus, this uh, expert dog, actually did not hit on Avery's burn pit. But he did hit on these other sites, not on Avery's property. Very interesting. Circumstances. After Manitowoc County seized control of Hallback's vehicle, Manitowoc County Sergeant Brian Knack obtained permission to search Redon's quarry in connection with Hallback's disappearance. Although a cadaver-sniffing dog named Brutus did show interest in several areas in the quarry or gravel pit south of the Avery Auto Salvage Yard property, Brutus did not factually alert on anything in the area, Dettering wrote in his report. Meanwhile, authorities remained a continued presence in and around the quarry in the coming days. For reasons unclear, authorities from Calumet and Manitowoc County granted access to Redont on at least four different occasions at their walled-off crime scene prior to Avery's arrest on November 9th. That's pretty interesting. And we will be examining that sign-in log, which had some fake names on it. It had some highly, highly suspicious individuals with incredible conflicts of interest at multiple sign-ins. They didn't even cover that up. So it's just, it's really weird. In her motion seeking new scientific testing, Zellner stated that Hallback's blue-green RAV4 had been concealed on Redont's quarry, and that it was moved from Redont's property on Friday night, November 4th, 2005, along the conveyor road to incriminate Avery for the young woman's disappearance. When? Sunday, November 6th. People involved, Joseph Tenner, Calumet County Deputy, Ertl, and other Wisconsin State Crime Lab forensic scientists from Madison. Circumstances, Tenner was part of a group of searchers with cadaver dogs inspecting the Mickles Materials Quarry east of Avery Road, police reports show. One of the cadaver dogs hit on a pile of dirt and sand north of the quarry's weight scale area. Where the dog alerted to, I located an item in the pile of dirt. The item was red in color, surrounded by pink material, Tenor stated. As time went on, according to Avery trial testimony, the authorities leading the Hallback murder probe did not keep Ertl abreast of the evidence he helped collect at Mickle's quarry. I don't know what happened to that sample after I collected it, Ertl testified during cross-examination. Reports show that these quarry clues were turned over to Sherry Culhane, State Crime Lab's DNA analyst. Chemical analysis of reddish-brown stains from the rocks and possible tissue indicated the presence of blood, Coolhane wrote in her report. However, these stains were not human in origin. So I, I wonder how that was determined and if the bones alleged to be of Hallback were even human in origin. Because, you know, we don't know that. As we went over in the previous episodes, we actually don't even have any conclusive proof that Teresa Hallback is dead because all of the tests were inconclusive. Then the FBI report did not have a match, contrary to the myths peddled around this case. And if you haven't checked out our DNA for Dummies episodes, we go over in depth 
what the DNA test actually showed and how DNA tests work. So you don't have to rely on the blind faith on the words of proven liars or incompetent people or just mistaken people. It's best to have the actual facts in front of you before jumping to any conclusions or assumptions or believing Ken Kratz in any way. All right, so Monday, November 7th, People involved, Rick Reimer, Calumet Deputy, Sarah Fosk, canine officer for Kakuana Police Department, Loof, a scent tracking bloodhound. Circumstances, using the trained bloodhound, authorities walked between 5 to 10 miles of quarry trails and fields around Radon's quarry property, which is south of Avery's property. One of the more significant tracks that Loof and Fausk tracked was from the south entry door of the Red House trailer near the concrete stoop, Reimer noted in his report. Loof tracked the scent to a cul-de-sac at the end of Cuss Road. It was indicated by Fausk that Loof was very intense on this track, Reimer wrote. The Hallback investigation file does not explain whether authorities went ahead and entered the house trailer. According to trial testimony, the deer camp consisted of three mobile homes at that time. So you know what's interesting? What's with all this disappearing evidence? Like, why was all this removed from reports and never mentioned again? Any theories, Maxwell? Nah, I have no idea. No speculation whatsoever? Um, yeah, explain the question again. <laughs> Maxwell Army. <laughs> I was just saying, any idea why all of this is disappearing from reports and never mentioned again? Well, they they have to move on because they feel stupid or, or, I don't know, they feel inadequate. No, but I mean, they had evidence. So if they're trying to frame Avery, my guess is they're not going to pursue evidence that is exculpatory towards Avery. So they're going to remove it from all the reports so nobody looks anywhere other than at Avery. Or yeah. they're just incredibly incompetent. I don't know. Um, you know, we, we weren't there. I don't know these people. It, it seems like it's a mix of conspiracy and incompetence. So just a couple people involved in the frame up since they framed him before back in 85 and covered that up. And when that was about to be exposed with the $36 million lawsuits and the depositions began, all of a sudden, when it's time for Kucerich and Vogel to get deposed, it's, you know, they sprung their plan into action. And then we're going to be going over the relationships between all of these people, even Calumet County. You have all, a lot of these people are related. A lot of these people live right around this area. Like we're talking within hundreds of yards of Avery's. We're talking within hundreds of yards of Redon's properties. And these people are all related and connected to each other. And once again, if we use a little bit of deductive reasoning and logic, we're going to chalk up how many coincidences. Like how many coincidences is a rational person willing to accept? 10, 20, 50, 100. I mean, it's all, you know, logic has definitely not been applied in examining this case by too many people. Monday, November 7th, people involved Mike Bushman, retired deputy inspector, Manitowoc County. So this is the guy that was involved in the 85 frame up. And then he was he was brought out of retirement to kind of get the job done to put away Avery for good. <laughs> Remember Mike Bushman? Um, is that the guy that was that got away with the rape thing? And then what? And then, oh, wait, which one is he? <laughs> Max Will Army. Is that, is, that the, is that the one that actually did the rape? And actually, but oh, Bushman has nothing to do with the rape. What are you talking about? What rape are you talking about? Oh, uh, wait, never mind. I'm mixing up things. Yeah. Wait, so, so, wait, so who is, who is this dude? <laughs> we went over him before. Maxwell, you got to watch our other podcast that you were on, but like, you got to check one? those out. Which uh, one? Well, we went over him and we went over him twice in the Avery series. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But which one, which, which one? There's like 11 episodes. Uh, I think it was critical conflicts. It was critical conflicts one or two. Uh, mm. So yeah, uh, Mike Bushman and then Dettering Wisconsin State Lab personnel. Circumstances. About 10.30 a.m., Bushman notified the mobile command post at Avery's property that his team of searchers discovered a potential burial site at the end of Cuss Road. The site drew heightened interest from a bloodhound following the scent from Teresa's shoe insole and was of interest to a cadaver dog. Ertl's report showed the Cuss Road site was about a half a mile from the west edge of Avery's land, police reports indicate. That day, Cuss Road was taped off and processed as a crime scene. However, 
Calumet and Manitowoc authorities waited another two hours before notifying the state crime lab to respond to the site. And why is that? Does that strike you as strange, Maxwell? Were they up to some kind of magic tricks as usual? <laughs> no? Yeah? Yeah, I, I, missed, uh, I missed what you said. <laughs> they waited two hours to call in personnel to the site from their initial discovery of the dog hit. Oh, okay. So they just waited two hours. What were they doing in that two hours? Uh, they were probably thinking about things. How to make it all work? How to fit the pieces together to frame Avery? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Ertl's team over in Chilton didn't arrive at Cuss Road until 1.40 p.m. Reports show that no human remains were recovered from the potential grave site, which encompassed a wooded area in close proximity to Redon's quarry. At 4.51 p.m., I was notified the excavation area was not pertinent to the case, Dettering stated. Now, I would like to know how that was determined. <laughs> because that's what Kratz uh, repeated at trial, too. That, that, yeah, that wasn't pertinent. The dogs hit on, uh, you know, they had a hit from uh, Teresa Hallback's scent and possible human remains. But that, that's not pertinent. We don't need to test or examine that in any way. <laughs> like, how was that determined? Don't you think that's important information? Mm, yeah. Okay, Thursday, November 10th, 2005. People involved, Sergeant Bill Tyson, Calumet County. Ron Eben, Wisconsin Division of Criminal Investigation. Members of the Wisconsin State Patrol. Circumstances, Tyson and Eben were at the command post when state troopers alerted them to a suspicious discovery at the quarry south of Avery's property. The state patrol officers indicated they found what they believed to be a human vertebrae in the water, Tyson stated. Other troopers alerted Tyson to a possible burned human foot. Tyson took the charred object into custody, concluding it was burnt insulation. While at the quarry, Tyson photographed a red-stained rag that was taken into evidence. Upon walking away from the object, I did locate what appeared to be fresh blood in the gravel, Tyson stated. Tyson took more pictures of the blood and he collected a swab of the stain. His report did not address what became of the suspected human vertebrae in the water. The state crime lab was not brought in to process the quarry site that day. Later, Coolhane analyzed the state, confirming it indicated the presence of blood, Coolhane wrote. The DNA test indicated the quarry blood did not belong to Stephen Avery, reports show. It came from an unknown male. All right, so we have some potentially bombshell evidence of possibly a murder, possibly a different murder, possibly a murderer, and this just disappears from all records and conversation of all kind. Does this make any sense, Maxwell? No, it does not. I mean, there's a possible burned human foot, a human vertebrae. Is none of this tested? Where are the test results? Why is nobody talking about this? And, and I actually forgot one more uh, rundown in my uh, logical assessment of this case. They also forgot to photograph or document the burn pit where her body or where her remains were allegedly found, which was the crux of the case against Avery. And they threatened the coroner, not allowing the coroner on site on a, on a murder site. <laughs> That's, that's messed up. I know, I forgot. That's kind of critical, too. When you put all the pieces together, when you, when you look at all of this as a whole, it makes no logical sense. And the bombshells that I just dropped a second ago, they found a human, a potential human vertebrae and a possible burnt foot, human foot. And there was presence of blood and you know, from these stains in the gravel. And then all of this disappears. <laughs> That's crazy. Wait, wait, where was this one? Where was this all found? This was south of Avery's property. This is not on Avery's property. Huh. So these are the quarry sites, Redonce and the Manitowoc County. How, how far was it? We went through all the maps, Maxwell. You don't remember any of this? On the previous podcast, you, we looked at all of the maps. The quarry site is south of Avery's property. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, but but like, that's like a mile, mile down, I think. 
and a couple couple hundred yards to to certain. I mean, it all depends. I mean, I don't know if they had a. It's not stating. Once again, is it really that relevant whether it was 100 feet south or 200 feet south? Like your questions are really weird. Like let's say let's say it was a half a mile south or a couple hundred yards. If it's if it's five if it's five to ten miles out, then it's like it reduces the likelihood that it's. If Stephen Avery was witnessed to be at the property, then it's not likely to be him that murdered. Well, is it likely that him that murdered anyway? So this was directly south. This is the quarry south of Avery's property. It's not 10 miles away. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, this is major. I don't know why this disappeared from everywhere. It's, it's pretty bizarre. I don't know why making a murder didn't focus on this extensively. Uh, it's just, I mean, everything is bizarre in this case. It's, it's just a travesty. All right, let's move on. Saturday, November 12th, people involved, Lieutenant Kelly Sippel of Calumet County, Reimer Eben Rodney Pevito, or Pevito, Wisconsin Division of Criminal Investigation. Circumstances. November 12th, three days after Avery's arrest, marked the last day authorities retained control of the 40-acre Hallback crime scene on Avery Road. However, reports reflect many of these investigators weren't looking for evidence at Avery's, but were focusing on gathering physical evidence at Redont's quarry and his deer camp site, where Loof, the bloodhound, had tracked a scent to a secluded red trailer off Cuss Road several days earlier. The first item of evidence they were able to collect would have been that of the burned garbage in an area that we refer to as the Deer Camp, located on Redont property west-southwest of Stephen Avery's evidence, Sippel wrote. The final two pieces would have been that of some bone and flesh, located in the Mickles materials quarry to the northeast of Avery property. So all these areas are around Avery's property, but not on Avery's property. The Mickles Quarry was where the team of cadaver scent dogs had fixated on a tall mound of gravel six days earlier. Reimer stated that he processed a container marked Deer Camp Burn Barrel, along with several items of evidence labeled as burnt material and burnt bone from the Deer Camp area. February 27th and March 1st, 2007, people involved Leslie Eisenberg, forensic anthropologist. Circumstances. During Avery's murder trial, Eisenberg confirmed that she examined a number of charred bones that were recovered by Wisconsin law enforcement from Redon's quarry property, including some pelvic bones. Additionally, a number of charred human bones turned up in one of the four burn barrels confiscated from behind the garage of Avery's sister, Barb Janda, who lived at about 50 yards from Avery. There were some cuts, appeared to be some cuts, on those pelvic bone fragments, asked Avery's defense lawyer, Dean Strain. That's correct, Eisenberg testified. But you wouldn't be able to conclude 100% certain that these were human pelvic bone fragments. Do I understand that correctly? That's correct. Okay, now you suspected them of being human pelvic bone. Am I understanding you correctly? Yes. Zellner has asked the court to order advanced DNA tests on the pelvic bones to determine their origin. She also sought testing on the suspicious burnt material from the deer camp to determine its evidentiary value. So this is kind of bizarre. We talked about Eisenberg before, so she can't even tell if it's a human bone. She just thinks it might be. And this is enough to convict Avery? So if somebody goes missing and they find, let's say, a deer pelvis on your property or not even on your property, on a neighboring property, and they're like, oh, yeah, you must have killed the person that went missing. It, it, does that sound conclusive in any way to you, Maxwell? Um, like, what do you mean? Like wrongly conclusive or I don't get it. <laughs> it's a very simple question, Maxwell. Um, yeah, I missed what you said. <laughs> If you, if, if, let's say on a property next to your property, police find, uh, let's say, a deer pelvis that they think might be a human pelvis and a missing person was last seen in your area, allegedly. Is that enough to convict you? Um, I guess not. You guess not? <laughs> oh, Maxwell. Oh, man, we got to get you some, we got to get some mugs. All right. Most of Miss Hallback's bones and 29 of her teeth were not found in Mr. Avery's burn pit. Zellner argued in her motion. 
State expert Leslie Eisenberg testified that the volume of bones discovered in the burn pit was two to three-fifths of what might be expected. Dr. Eisenberg testified that she suspected that the bones found in Redont Quarry, which included a pelvis, were human. Now, I don't think Zellner even took it far enough. The, the remains allegedly discovered in the burn pit. Where's the proof? Like, there was evidence collected. They said it was from Avery's burn pit. But people saying things, I mean, humans have been known to either lie or give inaccurate information. We're going to trust. I mean, if they didn't even they didn't even take photos or videos or maybe they did, but they've never been released. So there's no proof that the remains that they said were haulbacks were found in Avery's burn pit. They just said they were. And that's what they presented at trial. Does that sound definitive in any way, Maxwell? Um, no. And then keep in mind, the dogs never hit on the burn pit. So it seems like using logic and deductive reasoning, there were never any remains in the burn pit unless they were added after the initial dog searches where there was no hit, or they were never found in the burn pit at all, and they just were labeled as such. Oh, man. So, yeah, so the illogical guilters all cling to the notion that Hallback's remains were found on Avery's property, therefore he's guilty. But if most or all of her remains were not on his property, shouldn't the owner of the property they were found on be guilty? So how come none of the illogical guilters are even consistent in their line of thinking? If you can call what they are doing thinking, it doesn't make any sense. Once again, I'm not claiming he's innocent. Maybe he did kill her. And if she's dead, and if those are even her remains, which we don't know, but the case against him is the very definition of bunk. None of this makes sense. And I don't get how people can just ignore everything and pretend he's guilty no matter what. That's pretty weird. So how about we actually examine the so-called evidence because it doesn't seem to be evidence against him. The more we examine, the less there is. So there's pretty much nothing legitimately linking him to her murder if, in fact, she was murdered, which we don't know for sure. And then, of course, there's the matter of the police reports compiled by Manitowoc and Calumet County offering little insight onto why Joshua Redont, Scott Blodorn, and Ryan Hillegas were even regularly coming and going from the secured crime scene during the days that led up to Avery's arrest on November 9, 2005. In this case, it's going to raise questions for the police. What was their function? George Shiro, a nationally recognized forensic scientist, told USA Network Today, Wisconsin. Non-essential people should be kept out of the scene. It just keeps the questions from being raised about the integrity of the crime scene which we've already established the crime scene like Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department seems to have no integrity. <laughs> All right, let's examine one more thing, uh, which would be people kind of trying to character assassinate Avery as if in that some way would prove that he murdered Hallback. Like I've brought this up. Maybe Stephen Avery's a serial killer. Maybe he's killed a ton of people. But why would you convict? If you're going to say he's guilty of killing Teresa Hallback, you have to prove that. Even if you proved he's guilty of murdering all these other people, if you're going to put him away for Hallback's murder, you have to prove that he was responsible for Hallback's murder. So it's kind of strange and illogical to try to use character assassination, which is, again, based mostly on rumor and not even fact. So people brought up, especially in our previous episodes in the comments, people were bringing up that Avery was a felon because he was convicted of felony possession of a firearm. But there's a problem with that. Is that a legitimate conviction? Because... If that's not real, then he's not really a felon either. I mean, technically he is because he was convicted. But if, he, if he's innocent of the felony, then he's not a real felon. He was just falsely convicted of that as well. So let's look at this. So these charges seem to be linked to two weapons that were found on the property that Stephen Avery was renting during the original search warrant. The bullet with Teresa Hallback's DNA was matched during the trial with one of the guns, a Marlin 22. So the owner of the property that Stephen Avery was renting is Roland Johnson. And he testified to being the owner of both weapons and to using the Avery junkyard as a location to fire both weapons. So here's another interesting point. None of Avery's DNA or fingerprints were found on either weapon. So Maxwell, so he's renting a property. The, the owner of the property admits that both weapons are his, and he fires the weapons regularly. And there is zero 
DNA or fingerprints on the weapons belonging to Stephen Avery. So would a, con a felony possession of a firearm, is there any proof that Avery possessed those firearms or handled those firearms or touched those firearms in any way? Yes, that's a good point. Um, so, man, that's messed up. Like, everything is me did, everything's messed up. Like, is there anything that isn't messed up? I mean, up was, was he, did he have like a bad lawyer or something or, or what happened there? I don't know. I mean, his lawyers seem pretty decent. They just, it seemed like they failed to argue certain points and they failed to bring up some things or they tried to bring them up, but the Cause, judge, cause, cause, hold on, hold on. The judge shut them down. So like, I'm not sure, like, for example, if Zellner brought up these things and the judge just shut her straight up, I mean, if you can't do, I don't know if you can do anything in the court at that time, you'd have to file appeals and all that, which Zellner is in the middle of doing all these things. I'm not 100% sure if the lawyers tried to bring this up and they were shut down or they didn't even try because they thought they'd have better success with other things. I don't know. You know, it might be useful to go back to that case and, and re have a retrial for that one or something. Well, they're not really allowing any, they don't seem to be allowing anything. And, and, and uh, my point here is that is, are any of the charges, how many legitimate charges are there against Avery that aren't just corrupt law enforcement and judges trying to put this guy away for made up reasons? Because it, the more we look, the more everything seems non-legitimate. I mean, throwing the cat in the fire, this felony gun possession charge, if there's no proof I mean, how is he getting convicted of these things? I mean, is this the most obvious corruption or what? I, I mean, were these, I guess they, these were allowed in court, right? To be, I don't know, to judge Avery, like the cat and the gun thing. Uh, I guess no, so, right? Or, uh, no, that's just what they took him in for. He was charged for the murder of Teresa Hallback. Yeah, no, but in the, in the Hallback case, like, did, but, okay, so this is more like rumor, like, that's why he was these, these are these are more these are more social pressures Maxwell, on uh, Maxwell. No, you're, you're oh man, this is episode twelve. the whole, The reason he was arrested was because of the gun. That's why they actually physically brought him in. Then they charged him with Teresa Hallback's murder. Uh, okay. Huh. All right. Well, I'm gonna read this article. This was actually posted on ProductionSouth.wordpress.com. Regarding specifically the issues with the firearm possession and how some believe this is clear proof of a frame-up jab. So this was posted on October 19, 2017. Avery firearm possession reveals how the state framed him. Complaint CF05381 versus Complaint CF05375. 375 is for felon in possession of firearm. Now let's show how this destroys DCI Special Agent Thomas Fassbender. Do you remember who Fassbender is, Maxwell? Um... Uh, I forget. <laughs> and the state and shows how the premeditation of the contaminated bullet... Wait, so, wait, so who is he? I it I just stated it. DCI Special uh, Agent Thomas Fassbender, working for the state, and we discussed him on previous podcasts and uh, various problematic issues <laughs> regarding the presentation. But okay, so and shows how the premeditation of the contaminated bullet fragment is indeed planted, along with Dassey's confession to literally re-enter. Stephen Avery into the system as a felon. See the record for yourself. The discussion into Stephen Avery's possession of firearm was kept off record. The charge was kept off the table and never discussed in the preliminary hearing. It was only discussed in the judge's chambers. And you can look up all these court documents on stephenaverycase.org. Why? Because if they proceeded at this point with 375 in preliminary, then guess what has to happen? The firearm has to be admitted into evidence. But they can't do that. Why? Because they haven't done ballistic testing at this point, and they may need bullets. They never proceed with this until a later date because they can't use it in Hallback's case yet, thus making it a separate charge. They are going over all the evidence of the trailer, and it's not until the state crime lab can never link Teresa Hallback 
to Avery's home that they need to get ballistic testing from these firearms. When all this goes belly flop up, the state will reinterrogate the Dassey boys on February 27, 2006. All five brothers are re-questioned. Unfortunately, Brendan will be coerced. DCI Special Agent Thomas Fassbender, along with the help of Mark Weigert, will lead Brendan Dassey into the garage and coerce a story from him saying he was Uncle Stephen's accomplice. However, on November 9, 2005, it was Fassbender who put Teresa Hallback in the garage when interrogating Stephen Avery on video four months before Brendan Dassey ever puts Teresa in the garage for Fassbender. Fassbender wants for everyone to believe that Brendan told him about the garage. That is a lie. Fassbender is on video four months before Brendan is ever coerced, and Fassbender is telling Stephen Avery Teresa's DNA was discovered in the garage on November 9th, 2005. Now, the reason that 375 was discussed off record and in the judges' chambers is because Ken Kratz only entered Stephen Avery into the system as a felon on November 9th, 2005. Coincidentally, this same date where Fassbender tells Stephen Avery Teresa's DNA was discovered in the garage. This is important. They entered Stephen into the system as a felon only to have something to arrest him and detain him on during the investigation. Mark Gundrum, creator of the Avery Task Force, did a background search on Stephen Avery in 2003. This was conducted so Stephen Avery could appear alongside Governor Doyle at the Wisconsin State Capitol Standard Safety Procedures. Gundrum confirms this by stating in a video he never knew Stephen's past offenses existed. The reason for Stephen Avery not being a felon in the system is because the 1980s Sandra Morris gun charge was running concurrent to the 1980s Penny Bernstein rape and attempted murder charges. When exonerated, the Sandra Morris charge was vacated along with the Penny Bernstein charges. Over the 18 years Stephen was incarcerated, the computer system changed and he was never updated. The further proof that Stephen Avery was not listed in the computer as a felon, and you can go back and investigate for yourselves, can be provided on November 4th, 2005. Stephen Avery let officers into his home to search on the 4th. The guns were there above his bed in the same place on the 4th. They ran Avery's name, and guess what? He doesn't ever come back as a felon. The further proof is that they never arrested him during the first search on the 4th, as they would do any felon immediately. Law enforcement had the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th of November 2005 to arrest Stephen for those guns. However, he's never arrested until the 9th. Ken Kratz literally put the Sandra Morris gun charge back into the computer only on November 9th, 2005, on the very day they arrest Stephen. So how does Ken Kratz even know Stephen is a felon? Stephen Avery's felony records only existed on a file in a box in the Manitowoc County Courthouse. Now you have to understand how this felony charge came into existence is exactly why complaint CF05375 is being taken off the table and only discussed in the judge's chambers off record. The state got access to this box of Stephen's past records only during the deposition. Stephen was framed accordingly to his past records. Law enforcement even strategically released the cat-burning story that has been sitting only in this box to the media at the same time the cremains of Hallback are found. And by the way, what this doesn't even mention, of course, is that what we talked about before, Yanda threw the cat in the fire and not Avery. So they're not even being honest about that. Now, back to CF05375. If this case was discussed off record by Eric Loy, Avery's public defender at the time, then it makes you wonder why paid attorneys, Buting and Strang, would get Stephen to plead to the possession charge. It shows strong favoritism to the defense being directly aligned to the state. How? They were going to have a complete and separate trial if Stephen wished to fight the firearm possession. 
It's on record that Avery would have a completely different jury picked for this. But if he pled, they would run it concurrent to the CF-05381 case of intentional homicide and mutilation of a corpse. See, Avery had a better chance of exposing this entire frame job by taking this possession of firearm charge to trial. It would have opened up to the truth of how Avery was framed by past convictions only on record in that box. However, Buting and Strang got him to waive that hearing and accept the plea on that charge, which even if he had won the murder conviction, that plea would have sent Avery to prison for 10 years by itself. That's pretty insane. And how are Buting and Strang so up to speed on the firearm possession with what has been discussed off record in the judge's chambers when they weren't involved in that as defense counsel at the time? What all was discussed off record about this firearm? CF-05375, possession of a firearm by felon, became Fassbender's ace in the hole. Fassbender was the first to ever put Hallback's DNA in that garage on November 9th by telling Stephen Avery they got her DNA in the garage. But a bullet fragment wouldn't be found until four months later? Only after Brendan Dassey coerced as an accomplice? The box of Stephen Avery's records were only accessed during his civil deposition. The DCI was involved in this. Peg Lautenschlager was in charge of all the DCI offices in Wisconsin. Attorney General Lautenschlager's model policy on the electronic monitoring of juveniles was drafted by Jerome Buting and discussed by DOJ Director Ken Hammond on February 28, 2006. Fassbender, as well as the entire DOJ, were being trained not to interrogate minors with disabilities without an accompanying parent. However, it's only four days later on the 27th, they would pick Brendan out of the Dassey boys and coerce him on March 1st, 2006 without a parent. This is, is this mind shocking, Maxwell? I don't um, think, yeah, I don't think this has been out there that they, that Lautenschlager's policy on, on this was being drafted by Buting, Avery's attorney, and was also discussed with these same people who are specifically trained not to interrogate minors with disabilities without an accompanying parent. I mean, that should be minors, period, right? With or without disabilities, but I don't know. This says disability. Wow, this is weird. Now, why this is concerning. Not only did Jerome Buting draft the model policy for Lautenschlager on electronic monitoring of juveniles, but Jerome Buting doesn't even attack any part of possession of firearm. For one, the contaminated bullet fragment should have been declared a mistrial. Second, Buting should have challenged the firearm possession in the other trial they were going to hold for it with a separate jury. It makes you wonder why the possession of firearm trial was going to be held separate now, right? Oh, and just to be clear, Jerome Buting was the man, the top dog, drafting the electronic monitoring of juveniles. Lautenschlager and Buting could have protected Dassey as early as March 2nd, 2006. Lautenschlager was Fassbender's boss, and Fassbender has been training new investigators along with Ken Hammond as early as October 2005 for Lautenschlager. This was what Buting and Lautenschlager's commission handled. But you see how that worked out, right? It all points back to a political agenda. Do the math. Stephen Avery never had a fair trial. His own attorneys were politically connected to the attorney general. So this is all completely damning. I mean, this is, uh, this is crazy. I mean, this case has no shortage of mind shocks. But to answer your question, I mean, I think people did give Buting and Strang the benefit of the doubt in a lot of ways. But there are some more critical conflicts of interest here, or at least some kind of connections that have been previously unexplored that at the very least should definitely raise some eyebrows, right? Yeah. Yeah, so this is all, all just completely mind-shocking and this travesty and miscarriage of justice. But it's not even, it's not even his gun. Correct. And there were no DNA or fingerprints found on either weapon belonging to him. And the owner of the weapon and the property admitted it was his. It's not even like, <laughs> it's not even like we could say, oh, maybe so it's, there is. So it's not even like, so this case could be thrown out just based on that. Should have been, it should have been thrown out on everything. Like, I don't know. It's the whole thing. Yeah, but it's like, it's like, a, but what I'm saying is like, he was, the, the lawyers were throwing red herrings and they went after it. 
instead of focusing on the gun or whatever. Uh, yeah, some people do think that uh, that Kratz set up red herrings on purpose. But the whole thing was a sham because the judge wasn't allow the judge wasn't even allowing the lawyers to present alternate suspects. I mean, this is the biggest sham of a trial in the history of court that I've ever seen. <sighs> That's messed up. Yeah. So I'm going to close with a few points on the so-called evidence in this case and other inconsistencies. Point one, there were no bone fragments on the 22 shell. One of the leading experts proves that there should be bone fragments and state that although not impossible for a 22 shell to exit a skull, it is very rare, but never without bone fragments. Two, the timeline doesn't add up. Cell phone records prove that Teresa Hallback left the Avery property and was last at Cuss Road before disappearing. Three, there was no blood on the door handle, steering wheel, or gear shift of Teresa Hallback's car, and no fingerprints belonging to Stephen Avery. But fingerprints were found in the vehicle that were never, ever tested or examined as far as noted, and all disappeared. Four, blood spatter experts prove that blood didn't get in the RAV4 trunk and back door the way the prosecution claims. Five, no blood or DNA in Stephen Avery's trailer or garage. Six, Bobby Dassey's story changing. His brother Brian stating that Bobby Dassey first said he saw Teresa Hallback leave, then on the stand say she went into the trailer. Seven, top experts stating that there is no way to detect sweat DNA. Only blood, semen, saliva, and urine. Eight, DNA swab with no black marks, inconsistent with swab testing of hood latches. Nine, DNA sample being contaminated in the lab by technician. Ten, more DNA on the sample than is normally on a sample, but same amount that could be taken from a toothbrush. Eleven, car key with only Stephen Avery's DNA and no blood. No DNA from Teresa Hallbeck or anyone else on the key. Once again, spare key, not the, not the main key. Consistent with cleaning a surface and planting DNA. Twelve, only Stephen Avery's DNA on the hood latch. No one else's, not even Teresa Hallback's DNA. Consistent with cleaning a surface and planting DNA. Thirteen, Sheriff Department's Andrew Coburn calling in the RAV4's license plate after being tipped off of its whereabouts but not making a report. 14. Ex-boyfriend and roommate not asked for an alibi by investigating officers or prosecution. And we will get to them. We will get to other persons of interest and possible suspects. 15. Broken taillight. Ex-boyfriend claiming she made an insurance claim which was not made. And in the next episode, we will be getting to all things related to the RAV4. 16. Ex-boyfriend not remembering if he last visited Teresa in the morning, day, or night before her disappearance. He's, he's got having Maxwell moments. 17. Day planner that was in Teresa Hallback's possession the day she went missing found at home when she had no time to go back and leave it there during the day, proving that only the killer or persons in on a frame-up could have obtained it. And not 100% sure if that's true. We're going to be examining that as well. 18, burn pit not examined properly by experts and bones collected in unprofessional manner, resulting in a compromised crime scene. And 19, the coroner ordered to stay out of it and not allowed to do her job. 20, experts stating that the burn site could very well have been in the quarry. 21, bone fragments found in quarry burn pit consistent with the amount left behind after moving bone evidence, 22 cadaver dog and scent dogs following a scent leading to locations off of the Avery property. So, is Avery really guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? And these were points made online by armchair detectives somewhat, but utilizing logic instead of blind faith. So that concludes our so-called episode. What do you think, Maxwell? Does, has any of the evidence against Avery so far stood up to any kind of logical scrutiny? Uh, no. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. And we have quite a few bombshell details of evidence just being swept under the rug and never mentioned again. <laughs> All very, very telling. Very I, wonder if, I wonder if any of these people are, like, embarrassed about the, what, they have presented i don't know it's just kind of weird like but it seems like it's non-stop 
<laughs> it's nonstop overconfidence of what they're presenting. It's just weird. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think they ever expected to have this kind of mass scrutiny because before making a murder come out, I mean, they framed him in 85 and no one said a peep, basically. So, and then once making a murder came out, I don't think any of these uh, framers ever thought that their actions would be examined. And are they really the smartest people in the world? Because maybe they thought nobody, nobody, because if they're, if they're not extremely logical, they might not even, they may be like, oh, well, they're police officers. Nobody's going to question their actions. It's, it's so weird. It seems like, um, I don't know, like they, they felt, they felt like, um, uh, <laughs> they felt so idiotic with the first prosecution and were the conviction and then, yeah, yeah, and then they figured, ah, well, we gotta, we have to prove ourselves right, or we have to yeah. redeem ourselves. Yeah, a lot of people think that. Yep, and it's just so they just wow. keep digging. They just keep digging a bigger, more obvious hole. <laughs> yeah. Now they've crazy. dug too far, so it's like they can't go back on it now. <laughs> Yeah, so they have to keep justifying all their yeah. digging. Yeah. It's weird. But uh, hopefully uh, Zellner, Zellner gets to the bottom of this. And that's the other thing about Zellner. We'll do a dedicated episode on Zellner. But, like, a lot of the guilters, they really think she's that stupid. Like, she's staking yeah. her entire reputation. She's already a multimillionaire. She doesn't need any more cases. Her legacy is already secured. She has so many exonerations. What is her record? Like, 17-0 and 0 on exonerations? Like, she's yeah. done. She doesn't have yeah, to she's, keep going. She doesn't yeah, have to do anything. So it's like, and it seems like, and, and if she really thought he was guilty, like some people actually think that she's a liar and that she's doing this for publicity for something, not obviously <laughs> not logical people, but like, she'd be a hero if she turned around and said, oh, wait a second, he is guilty. He belongs in jail. Like, yeah. So and she, and she, she said that publicly too. Like if she she did say that, yes. If yeah, and she'll do it too, man. If she finds anything that I mean, makes... she also like she's dealt with people like that before. She dealt with a murderer and she got him to actually give up information. So like yeah. it's not like she's gonna cover for a murderer. Like, and it's not like he's even paying her. They don't have any money. <laughs> so she she's doing this basically pro bono. Anyway, I mean, obviously, if he wins the massive lawsuit that he's getting, she's going to get the money, but she's already rich. She's already famous. She's already has a legitimate uh, established legacy. Like there's no reason to keep going. So like, and, she, and she can retire and uh, lavishly and, and not deal with this bullshit, but <laughs> exactly. But she keeps yeah. pushing because, you know, I think at a certain point in life when people already have, you know, their fortune and their legacy established, it's about doing the right thing. So and and helping people so it's like she's giving back now so uh, it's also very telling the type of people that attack her and how they attack her it's one you know so it's it's all very very telling but we'll be getting into the rav4 because there is quite there is there is some new evidence and there are some massive inconsistencies in the whole narrative regarding the rav4 some people don't even think it's her rav4 so we'll be going through all of that insanity in the next episode. So once again, thank you for joining us for another edition of the Mind Shock Podcast, True Crime. If you like the podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. Subscribe to our channel. Hit the bell for notifications. If you like the podcast, feel free to share it across social media. Any questions, comments, suggestions, thoughts, drop them in the comments section. Like our Facebook page. You can also check us out on Reddit, Twitter, Patreon. This is Bruce McGuire signing off. Nice old powers. We'll catch you guys next time.